This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that looks at new films playing in the theaters and some older goodies that might be tangentially related to them. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer for localexpress.ca here in Halifax. And I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and blogger at Flaw on the Iris, which is at the halifaxbloggers.ca. Today on Lens Me Your Ears, we're talking modern westerns. What is a modern western? Well, we're going to get to the core of that in light of the release of Hell or High Water. So today's show is going to be kind of broad ranging and I, I the, the open the, ranging open, you might say? open ranging <laughs> is the movie we're going to talk about uh, in a bit. But uh, the uh, the idea of movies that are necessarily westerns in terms of genre, but western ish in terms of setting, um, because there's a there's a new film uh, that's now in theaters. If, if if you're lucky, you can see it in the theater when you hear this, and if not, catch it on uh, some other platform or format. But it's called Hell or High Water, and it's kind of a, a throwback to 70s uh, crime caper films, but also has elements of uh, the classic Hollywood Western thrown in there as well with a uh, dogged sheriff on the track of uh, a couple of wily outlaws and uh, a bit of a, a social message thrown in there as well. But um, this is... Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's nothing new really to see these kinds of films, uh, but uh, this film has has a certain newish energy about it. It's got um, some hot young actors in the form of Ben Foster and Chris Pine, and a, a good old reliable Jeff Bridges as the sheriff in question. And uh, the the film is it kind of opened slowly and now is kind of gaining some momentum. I went to a matinee screening of it yesterday, and there's actually a pretty good crowd turning out for it. So this is a film that's kind of. Uh, Earning its keep via word of mouth for the most part. It's not. It hasn't had a big splashy uh, promo uh, for its release or anything like that. But I think people appreciate the kind of old-fashioned uh, st- storytelling smarts of this movie and the kind of uh, uh, adrenaline and propulsion with which it tells its story of two guys trying to uh, raise enough money to save the family farm. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think what people are getting from it, besides just really great script and a great dialogue, and it's confidently directed by uh, David McKenzie, a, a filmmaker whose work I, I didn't really know previous to this, but it's also scripted by Taylor Sheridan, an actor-screenwriter who penned last year's Tex-Mex thriller Sicario. So this guy is definitely a serious talent. And uh, the film is, yeah, it's, well, maybe it's, this gives us a chance to sort of get to the point of what a modern Western is or Western-ish. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I sort of thought about it for a while and I, I I think everyone knows the traditional Western, which is the sort of, it's defined somewhat by the location. It's the Southwest United States tends to be in that place, desert landscape, uh, traditionally set in the 19th century uh, frontier you know, issues, survival and justice usually. Usually the law is, is only a suggestion and, and someone does something and there's, there's either revenge or, 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 or some kind of tragedy and uh, the people who are trying to make a go of it, trying to make a living, uh, have to put up with, with uh, you know, the outlaw. And, and I mean, the outlaw is such a big part of, a, of the American consciousness in a general way that Westerns have had a real, a real uh, uh, impact in the culture. But in recent years, the, 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 um, the genre has become fallow. And I was trying to think about what was the last actual traditional Western that I saw. And I mean, there have been some sort of revivals of traditional Westerns, but you don't see them every day in the cinema. The last one, I think, I think The Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's film, kind of put 
the end. Well, it was kind of the end of an era for some, I think partly because it was such a turnaround for him after having made a living making films uh, wherein he used his guns uh, to mete out a certain kind of justice. This was a movie that showed the consequences of the kind of violence that that his characters had had used for years. And and as a result, it felt kind of like a, a, a realization and, and a more ma- I mean, maturing, which I think is part of the reason why he won a you know, boatload of Oscars. And, <laughs> that, and it was a, a terrific film. But I, then I went back and thought, well, what, where did the change happen? If that was the last of the traditional Westerns, and, and I think it had been happening for a while, actually, because if you look back to the 70s, you know, a movie like Badlands or Days of Heaven, the Terrence Malick films, they could be considered Westerns. Certainly Heaven's Gate is a Western, and um, Paris Tech. Texas is a Western. These Europeans and and sort of art house auteurs making films in that environment that could still be considered Westerns, but are a little different. Some of them are modern. Some of them are contemporary. Some of them are still set in the 19th century. But it is, um, oh, how about uh, Dead Man by Jim Jarmusch? Like yes. these, <laughs> these are very odd films that could potentially be Westerns, but then, but uh, use some of that element, and then they use other genres as well. More recently, there have been comedic westerns, A Million Days to Die, uh, Ways to Die in the West, which was not very well received. No, let's stick with Blazing Saddles for yeah. comedic westerns. <laughs> yeah. But it, it yeah. seems like every director wants to kind of put their stamp on uh, on that setting and, and in that uh, in that landscape and on that genre and, and in one way or another. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino's last two films could, you know, technically be be qualified as as, as westerns. I, I mean, Django is, is it's kind of taken from the spaghetti western format, takes it to grisly new heights, and and obviously there's a whole southern uh, uh, slave era aspect of it as well, which is more of a southern than a western, but but it still it has you know there's lots of uh, western tropes scattered throughout the film as well, and of course uh, the hateful eight is 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 essentially an homage to uh, a snowbound western called Day of the Outlaw, which is uh, takes place in a in a wintry town in the mountains uh, and has kind of a similar vibe about it, a uh, very stark black and white film uh, from the late 50s. Um, in fact, the only, I was trying to think, like, you know, like Martin Scorsese seems to be one of the few major directors that hasn't had the urge to make a Western. It's true, but he's such an urban guy. Though he's he, such an urban guy. Boxcar yeah. Bertha is about as close, his his Rod, his sort of major Roger Corman effort, one of his earlier features, uh, is, is the one film I can think of where he kind of, ventures into that kind of territory kind of depression era story about riding the rails and that's that's about as close as he ever gets but he is a big fan of them I, you know if you watch his um my journey through american film uh he spends quite a great deal of time on directors like bud bedecker and andre de toth guys who kind of took the western in a dark foreboding direction in the 19 late 1940s and into the 1950s um at, at the same time you start to see those films that use that those kind of stories and that kind of setting, but set it in the modern day. For example, um, there's an, a movie that's not that easy to find. Uh, I think it is on DVD, but you have to maybe mail order it or something like that. I have it on Laserdisc, which tells you how far back I go with this film. But it's uh, called Lonely Other Brave with um, uh, Kirk Douglas as a guy who gets uh, tangled up in, in um, some crimes. And, and he's a cowboy who goes on the run, runs afoul of the law. So he's on a horse, and he's out running helicopters and guys with uh, patrol cars. And I think Walter Matthau plays one of the lawmen who's on his trail, as I recall. I haven't seen it in a long, quite a long time, but it's it's uh, kind of this you know monumental ode to the passing of old ways, I guess. Um, you know, it came out a few years after uh, Sam Peckinpah's Ride the High Country tried to put its kind of epitaph on the classic classic right. western with uh, Joel McRae and and Randolph Scott and two of their uh, 
final roles, if not their very final roles, but certainly at the tail end of their career, and then rewriting the whole Western template with the Wild Bunch a few years later. So, um, you know, there's always these attempts to kind of, A, put a stamp on the Western and kind of make the last great Western, but there's always seems to be somebody else coming along who wants to make their last great sure. Western. It's, 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 I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the very first movie you know, plotted movie ever made was uh, the Great Train Robbery. So the very first real successful movie was a western, and 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 then the first movie made in Hollywood by Cecil B. DeMille was uh, the Squaw Man, another western about an Englishman who goes out to the plains and has a a romance with uh, with a native woman and and the complications of that. Uh, invokes. In fact, he he remade it two more times. He was so, so stuck on that story. So it's it's this thing that uh, it's it's almost like the foundation of the motion picture business uh, entirely. And uh, it it seems like uh, every time someone says the genre's dead, somebody else gets the desire to return to it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And I I'm quite okay with that because the way that new filmmakers tackle the material and tackle the kind of themes that come out of westerns is, I think, pretty entertaining. I I. Uh, I wasn't a fan of the recent Lone Ranger, the big budget uh, bomb with starring Johnny Depp, but there were elements of it that did feel familiar and fun. Uh, and then, of course, there's the post-apocalyptic sci-fi western, which we've seen in films like Outland, The Book of Eli with Denzel mm. Washington. That's a film, actually, that I did enjoy. Mm. Even last year's Mad Max Fury Road, though, I think less that than the original three. Those felt more like westerns from the 80s than last year's well, c- Certainly version. the second one. Yeah. You know, instead of uh, herding the cattle, they've got to get those fuel trucks. That's right <laughs> on the road. So it's you know just substitute uh, cattle for gas. Yeah, and uh, and you know the uh, Michael Crichton film Westworld, uh, of which of course is being remade as an HBO series coming up this fall. Uh, and then a film I saw last year that I really liked called Z for Zachariah, or Z for Zachariah, which was basically a three hander, three characters trying to survive the nuclear wasteland in this kind of perfect valley, but uh, but feels very much like a Western. There's very little technology and they're kind of stuck in this place and they're kind of dealing with with their their feelings of faith versus science and uh, it's a it's a pretty fine film as well. And and it's a loosely a Western. But um, all not, of the- not to be confused with Zachariah, which is the one from the early seventies. No, no, exactly. Not <laughs> Which, to be confused. There's with that. a lot more people, and there's a lot more than three people in that one. Yeah, what, that's a confused mess. But worth 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 a look if you want to see like sort of the hippie generation's take on the western with. <laughs> There you music, go. music by Country Joe and the Fish and a script by the guys from uh, Firesign Theater, I believe, who <laughs> contributed to that. So it, it, it's kind of a mess, but it's uniquely of its time, that's for sure. I didn't even realize that that the, they shared at least part of a, a title. I, I my my feeling is that this is very different, uh, but. Uh, but I back to, oh, yes. to back to Hell or High Water. Uh, the one film that it. I guess probably because of the Jeff Bridges casting, but the film that it reminded me a lot of in some ways is Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, a film that we discussed during our Clint Eastwood uh, uh, podcast, uh, wherein 25-year-old Jeff Bridges joined Clint Eastwood as a pair of bank robbers in rural Montana. And then 42 years later, we've got Bridges here on the other side of the law. Here he's playing... um, this very set in his ways, almost at retirement cop who is uh, racist and bigoted and working with a, uh, a, a partner who is part Mexican and part uh, Native American and uh, doesn't 
hesitate to put him down, you know, in a casual sort of uh, maybe comedic way, but really in a kind of unpleasant way. And uh, and then all, all the while they're chasing these these brothers played, as you mentioned, by Pine and Foster, who have in a very 2016 take on a Western theme, uh, are trying to, uh, you know, save, as you said, save the farm that their mother ran and owned for years uh, because the bank has is about to foreclose on it in a story that a lot of Americans have gone through since the financial collapse of 2008. And, uh, and I think that element really makes it feel contemporary in a way that maybe, um, you know, other sort of modern Westerns would not feel as, as up to date. And I, I love that about it. I love that it, it feels like this is something that people might actually relate to in a real way, whereas you're still dealing with this, this, these sort of older traditions of the genre where where there's yeah these guys are bank robbers and they're trying to figure this out and one one brother the Ben Foster character he's kind of a loose cannon and he's been in jail and the other brother is the respectable one but he the, the respectable one is the one planning everything he's figured this out cuz what he's doing is laundering the uh, the money that they've stolen casinos and then they're going to pay back the banks uh, that they've stolen the money from so basically with stolen money i mean it's it's very clever yeah, and of course, you always have that that classic uh, combo of like the the calm, cool, collected planner, and then the 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 hotshot wild card, uh, who's like willing to take chances, which invariably you know put them in a, in a bad situation, which is what what happens here. Um, yeah, at some point, cattle barons were the, were the bad guys, and then they were replaced by oil barons. At yeah. some point in the course of of movie history. Um, and uh, I, re- I really like that th- this film, you know, is able to f- kind of deftly focus on the, the, the economic status of people in rural Texas. You know, you see the, all the fast credit, um, you know, easy loan billboards and, and the oil refineries that look like they're about to topple over. And, and you know, the, there's still hope of, of maybe finding some gold in the ground, you know, some black gold. But uh, it's, it's a dream that's quickly... Uh, Quickly dissipating, and 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 people are kind of living on the edge um, everywhere you go. It's 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 um, it was actually I think filmed in New Mexico, but set in Texas. But I think the landscape's similar enough, uh, and, and there is enough of that industry there as well that uh, they can sort of tie it all in. But uh, you know, I, those those open roads and those big big prairie skies, I, you know, I just never get tired of seeing those on the big screen. <laughs> Slow West was a real discovery for me. It's written and directed by someone named John McClane. I think it's his first film, and I wish it had opened in cinemas here so I could enjoy what appears to be the gorgeous widescreen vistas on a smaller screen. Um, It's a real confident effort about uh, a forthright young Scotsman played by uh, Cody Smith McPhee who's searching for his long-lost love uh, named uh, Rose, and uh, she's played by Karen Pistorius across a lawless Old West. Now, Michael Fassbender channels a little bit of Eastwood, Eastwood's uh, Josie Wales era. Uh, he plays a character named Silas, and he takes the kid under his wing, intent on keeping him alive long enough to get paid. Now, uh, the film's a bittersweet travelogue. It's the harshness of people's treatment of each other is in stark beauty to the gorgeous wilderness around them. Now, interestingly, I understand it was shot in New Zealand, which I guess passes for <laughs> 19th century America these days, and it's fully its own character. Uh, the 
the the great Ben Mendelssohn also uh, appears to provide some whiskery support. Um, you know, and in a lo- like a lot of great westerns, it ends in uh, in tragedy, and uh, your patience for its the way it 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 sort of meanders and circuitous plot depends on your affection for the genre. I love the film, uh, and it's actually only an hour and twenty four minutes, so it gets where it's going pretty quickly. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily a you know, one of the kinds of movies, obviously it came and sort of went for a lot of people, it didn't get a, lar- a large play but uh, in terms of a cinematic release, but it is a really wonderful film, and, uh, and I, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, brevity is the soul of a lot of classic Westerns. Uh, you know, eventually, they get, you get into these epics like The Big Country and uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and, and a lot of these kind of later Westerns, Once Upon a Time in the West, and the Hallelujah Trail, all these films, um, you know, surpassing the two-hour mark. But uh, the classic uh, Bud Bedecker westerns of the 1950s with Randolph Scott uh, in most of them uh, are like, some of them are barely over 70 minutes long. They just have a very kind of tight, focused story, um, you know, and, and they devote a lot of time to character. Uh, and and uh, the plot is fairly minimal. It's just kind of a clothes peg to hang um, some of these sort of Western archetype characters on. And uh, it's nice to see a film that returns to that. A film we'll talk about later, Meek's Cutoff, also uh, does that uh, with with a refreshing brevity compared to another film. <laughs> well, any of the films by Kevin Costner. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's that's something to be said, you know, that, that you can establish, you know, this visual presence on the, on the screen and, and uh, these characters in the storyline and still wrap it up in a, in a very brisk kind of, almost like a short story length of time. But uh, that seems to be a lost art with a lot of uh, filmmakers these days. Yeah, it's true. And uh, it's funny you mentioned the Kevin Costner. I I purposely avoided talking too much about his films from the 90s where he was sort of well-known and an Oscar-winning filmmaker and actor and star. He had it all going for him. And he made, well, he made Dances with Wolves, which was beloved, not by me, but by lots of people. <laughs> and uh, because the fact, part of the fact was it just went on and on and on uh, in a way that I didn't feel it was super engaging. Um, but he also, there was also Wyatt Earp, and which was also very long, and I, I much preferred Tombstone. Uh, and then, then uh, yeah, then he made uh, Waterworld, which is kind of a Western, an apocalyptic Western on the water, but it's Western-esque, mm-hmm. uh, The Postman. And uh, and then eventually Open Range, which I haven't seen, but you've you've seen it. What did you make of Open Range? Well, I, I quite enjoyed Open Range. It was one of those films where you know there was a, a lot went into it. Uh, I think uh, Costner sunk a lot of his own money into the film, and I think it eventually did okay. But it, it wasn't. It didn't get a wide theatrical distribution. Um, it, uh, it it got some 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 fairly glowing reviews and some fairly middling reviews. Um, it was all shot in Alberta. Maybe that's why I heard so much about it because it, they were doing so much work in Canada and the prairies and, and uh, they sure make it look good. But um, it's it's a very traditional Western. It, it, it's uh, I wouldn't put it on the same level as some of the films it aspires to be. If you think of things like uh, The Man from Laramie, the Anthony Mann film, which is my favorite Jimmy Stewart Western, or uh, Delmer Davis's uh, Jubal, um, which uh, you know has been given the Criterion treatment, uh, thankfully, lifting it out of obscurity. Uh, great, great widescreen western with I think Glenn Ford. Um, you know, it's it's kind of going for that almost operatic kind of feel. But those films do it in such a direct and driven way. And of course, Open Range. It's the shortest of the Kevin Costner films. It's two hours and twenty minutes, I think, or something like that. And that's short for him. Uh, and it's it has that kind of elegiac feel, but then it 
you know, once it gets into the second half, it starts to ratchet up the tension between the open range cattle herders, which are uh, Costner and Robert Duvall, and the, the evil rancher played by Michael Gambon, who of course is always great. And uh, the nice thing about it, it doesn't over, Michael Gambon shows up early in the film, kind of announces his presence, and then you're just left waiting for him to, to show up again and then kind of, you know, bring this overwhelming evil back to the screen and, and they make you wait for it uh, and, and utilize that well. They don't overplay it at all. Um, and uh, I like the film a lot more than I thought I was going to because, again, like you, I find cost can be a little ponderous and a little, uh, a little preachy. And, and there are elements of the film that uh, are... Well, they don't verge on cliche. They are cliche. There's a, <laughs> at one point, somebody somebody actually says, "Like, let's you know, why don't you rustle up some grub, and <laughs> you know, and 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 stuff about you know, women. You know, man needs a woman to keep himself grounded and all. You know, there, there's some lines of dialogue that are you know just a, a little bit on the clunky side. And then there are other moments that apparently were purely improvised. Um, you know, according to what I read, that 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 actually do have that kind of ring of authenticity. So it kind of there are it, there are some drawbacks to the film, and you know, in fact, it it sounds like kind of a halfway recommendation, but uh, it's it's a truly great role for Robert Duvall as as basically the boss. He's just you know everyone just calls him boss of this cattle cattle drive, and and uh, you know. I, He's definitely in that echelon of actors you could watch read the phone book. He's a pretty much. Yeah. He's a cliche. And uh, Costner pretty much made the film so he could work with him. Like, like you know, when when there was a chance that maybe Duvall couldn't do the film, he talk, he thought about just pulling out of the whole thing altogether. And in fact, Costner bills Duvall above himself. Oh, well, that's uh, that's pretty in the great, film. Actually. And actually, yeah. and and I guess he didn't tell Duvall until like the premiere or whatever. And, and uh, apparently, Robert Duvall was was kind of emotionally touched by that. Which huh. is, it's a small thing, but you know, it's just like. Um, you know, credit where credit is due, I guess. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, again, it, it's just, it's, it, it was almost like a gift to this fabulous actor. And, and uh, he, he certainly makes the most of, it, most of it with a really, you know, just one of those lived in, you know, like worn shoe leather kind of performances. And, uh, and that's really, you know, playing, playing the old pro cattle driver, uh, Duvall just makes you think he is that guy. And, uh, you know, that's, which is, of course, been his strength. Through a through a long long career, but uh, you know e even at this stage in his career, he he uh, you know he doesn't show any sign of uh, of uh, you know phoning it in at all. And there's some other nice aspects about it. Great supporting cast. Uh, Michael Jeter uh, gives his uh, last performance uh, prior uh -huh. to his uh, premature death at the age of 50. He plays uh, the the blacksmith uh, livery stable attendant, and he has a nice uh, he has a nice role uh, throughout the film. Uh, and and then you know he died shortly after the film came out. So ah. you know he's an actor. You know one of those character actors that uh, I don't feel gets enough credit. I always think of him in uh, in um, the Fisher King. You know he's oh, a yes. great role in that. And you know here he's spry and energetic, and you don't think he's he's uh, about to pass off this mortal coil at any point. But uh, he, he's certainly one of the joys in this film, as well as uh, Kim uh, Maritimer Kim Coates. Or sorry, not Maritimer because he's from Newfoundland. Uh, Atlanta Canadian actor Kim Coates shows up and. Uh, and, and he was also in Waterworld, so he gets to be killed by Kevin Costner in uh, two different films. <laughs> well, you know that's a that's a claim to fame right there. Yeah, right there. So I, again, it is a very traditional western. It's not trying to bring a new form of filmmaking to to the genre or anything like that. But it is, you know, it is very well made. It's gorgeous to look at, um, and you know, Costner pulls himself from that kind of ponderous brink. 
that, that he sometimes, you know, something like the postman, which was what, three hours long or something like that. Um, you know, he reigns himself in literally uh, in this film and it's, uh, and, and plays a guy with a, with a past who's got a dark side to him that uh, is only kind of slowly revealed and, uh, you know, manages to step outside his own comfort zone a little bit, which is nice to see. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I definitely want to see it. I have not seen it, but uh, you talking about it makes me feel like I want to get back into how we distinguish between modern Westerns and traditional Westerns. And I think it's important to mention the Coen brothers' contribution to this genre. Uh, I, I suspect that we, no, I don't suspect, I know that we will do a Coen brothers oh, podcast oh, at some point. Definitely. Uh, but uh, in relation to this particular conversation, it's worth mentioning that their first film was Blood Simple, which was a noir, but also set in, in the West. It has Western elements, uh, you know, men with 10-gallon hats, right? <laughs> and oh, yeah. Walsh. It's, it's very Texan. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. Uh, Raising Arizona has Western elements. But in my mind, the the two biggest Westerns would be uh, True Grit, the remake uh, of the, well, I guess it's a it's a uh, another version of an adaptation of the book, book yes. a, as opposed to a remake of the John Wayne film. Um, and, uh, and then No Country for Old Men, their Academy Award winning film, which feels like the quintessential modern Western. It, it has this very sort of gloomy and intense and you know, dark outlook towards life and basically saying that there is I think I think the the point of the film to some degree is is that there is evil out there it's it's coming for you it's there <laughs> you're just going to have to you just have to live with it just how you respond to it is is uh you know makes our measure and uh you know that's it's it's an incredible film and it feels very modern it's set in the in the modern day and then they they go ahead and do a uh, true grit which is couldn't feel more traditional. Like there's something about it, you know. Again, uh, Jeff Bridges once again playing playing a a, a grizzled old uh, uh, a guy who's hired by this young this girl to to you know uh, avenge her her family. And uh, it's it is a uh, but it's a total charmer. It's it's a very it's a wonderful film to watch. But I just think it's interesting that the Coens. Uh, and again, this is a conversation for another time, but the Coens could turn on a dime and do something that feels so contemporary by using old genre mm-hmm. tropes, but also do something that feels very much like it would fit into the traditional genre. Yeah, they they, they get to play both sides of the coin. Um, and of course, there's a lot of coin flipping in No Country for Old Men, which <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, sort of underlines kind of the banality of evil and also the randomness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you get those kind of characters... In, in the classic westerns, you get some 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 real baddies, but uh, but nothing quite on that scale. I mean, I, I don't think any, anybody was prepared for that kind of Anton Sugar 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 Sugar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, was was uh, just a career making role, and uh, you know, I, I can't wait to revisit that film in particular. Um, it's uh, it, I'm I'm reminded of um, another film that the like No Country for Old Men, which I saw recently. Um, which is kind of like a Western setting, but it's a modernish tale. I think it's set in the fifties, early fifties, um, and based on a classic uh, pulp fiction novel by uh, Jim Thompson. Uh, it's called "The Killer Inside Me." It's about a sheriff who's yeah, Casey, know, Casey Affleck. C- Casey Affleck, who's basically a psychopath, uh, and uh, just gets you know deeper and deeper into uh, into murder and lying and and. And for no real personal gain, he just, uh, he's a sadist and, uh, you know, just kind of likes inflicting pain on people, uh, including the, the woman, the women in his life, which he ostensibly loves. 
Um, this had previously been a film with Stacy Keach in the 70s, um, you know, which I think at the time, you know, when you look back at it, maybe it didn't go far enough given the restrictions of the time. Um, uh, although Keach is fine in the film, but I, but uh, it also suffers from not having had a proper release in its proper uh, format and all that kind of thing. I, I think I saw a really bad videotape of it years and years ago. Um, so I think a revisiting of this story was in order. I don't know that this version, directed by Michael Winterbottom, a, a director who is often quite good and sometimes not so good, but um, in, in this case, I was fascinated to see the story get retold. Uh, I think they went a bit overboard with the violence, um, you know, primarily against the female characters. They, they, they really go to town with it, uh, at least in the version I saw. Maybe it was a, an uncut version or something like that. But, uh, you know, they're, they're literally transcribing what's in the book, which probably wasn't necessary. Casey Affleck is fine just because he has that placid veneer. He of, can look very sweet. With this, but, yeah. you know, but while kind of communicating this menacing undercurrents. I mean, you think about uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, that uh, where he played Robert Ford, and he's quite good in that as well. Yeah, that is a terrific Western. I don't know exactly where that fits on the spectrum of modern <laughs> and traditional, because it has traditional elements, yeah. but it also has this incredible visual uh, sort of art house aesthetic that makes it feel like no other film. Yeah, it's actually of the of Westerns the last 20 years, I'd say that's maybe my favorite. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a standout film just on all levels and uh, certainly one of Brad Pitt's best performances. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, Killer Inside Me is worth a look. Um, uh, it's it's not that hard to find on disc. I don't know uh, what, what other platforms you can find it on, but uh, Casey Affleck is great. Uh, Kate Hudson is is pretty good as one of the women that he loves, kind of the good girl. And the bad girl, played by Jessica Alba, is a woeful piece of miscasting. <laughs> you think but, so? Uh, eh? But it has kind of it's like the same. It's almost like it's the same setting as um, Hell or High Water. It feels like it could be the same town, only you know, sixty years in the past, and you you know now we're seeing the crumbled decayed version of it in this film uh, in uh, Hell or High Water and we're seeing kind of the the boom years of, of the oil boom and, and the, the construction boom uh, which is uh, person personified by uh, Ned Beatty who plays uh -huh. like the, the town land baron kind of thing the, the, the kind of the developer who's kind of making this central city they call it in the, in the, in the film and I guess in the book um, you know and he's great because you don't see Ned Beatty and, and he's kind of retired somebody retired like uh, Robert Duvall and you know, the permanently retired Gene Hackman. But um, speaking of Unforgiven, uh, but it's it's uh, it, it's a it's a little unfocused, and uh, there's some Bill Pullman appears out of nowhere towards the end of the film, is almost as kind of like a Deus Ex Machina character, just because I guess maybe they figured, oh, we can get Bill Pullman, let's just throw him into the movie, uh, and uh, and Jessica Alba just completely feels out of place. She feels like a she doesn't feel like she fits the decade or the, the period at all, which is, you know, I thought, well, you know, that's one mistake they could have maybe corrected with a better actress. Yeah, I don't remember her being as bad as you do, but I don't, I don't, I, she has been certainly maybe, not great in other things. Yeah, so. maybe, and she's been fine in other things, but <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe, you know, she just feels like the wrong person yeah. for, for the part. Fair enough. You know, I think uh, the one thing about the film that uh, stayed with me after I saw it was that violence, especially mm -hmm. the violence towards women in the film. And it's, and then the question, you know, the question of violence on film certainly is something that that I think the it, the film challenges you to, to keep watching. I, I felt like looking away a lot of times, but then I think, well, so much of so much of violence these days is, uh, you know, it's 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 made palatable by not showing the consequences or not showing the actual. 
uh, the actual deed. And, uh, and, and in this, you can't, you know, it's, it's right there and it's very uncomfortable. It's very unpleasant. Um, and maybe that, that could be argued that it's exploitative, but maybe it's, it's doing us a service culturally speaking, because Mm -hmm. it's forcing us to like come to grips with what that's actually like. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's giving too much credit to this film, which, which I happen to, I did happen to like watching it. I'm glad I saw it. Uh, certainly I appreciate the sort of noirish aspect being brought into the Western, uh, you know, the sort of crime drama. I wouldn't, I don't know if you would call it a serial killer drama, but certainly it's, of that ilk too, as well as as being a western. Uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely a problematic film, but an interesting one. Well, Carson, I guess you have a couple of films featuring an actor who uh, these days seems to personify the western. I mean, he's a Texan by uh, by birth, and and just seems to be more at home on a horse than just about anybody in the movies these days. It's true. And we mentioned him in No Country for Old Men, and that is Tommy Lee Jones, who's who's getting, <laughs> he's kind of this, he has this image, uh, this persona, this this sort of like humorless guy, but he actually made done comedies and he's been great in them. So clearly he's he has some sense. Uh, he's also a filmmaker himself. He directs feature films, n- films that don't tend to get a, a large, uh, a lot of attention, but they are really well done. He's, he's a talented filmmaker. Uh, in 2005, he made The Three Burials of Melchizedek Estrada, which is set in the, in the West, uh, but in the contemporary day. And it's about a, a Mexican illegal immigrant who's working in Texas, and he he gets, accidentally, he gets killed by um, a border patrol officer. And, uh, and then he quickly buries the body, and he doesn't talk about it, but the body is found and then reburied by the local sheriff's office. Uh, and then a friend of the the, the dead fellow uh, insists that he finds out who's responsible for the killing and insists that the body get transported back to Texas. And he insists that the guy who did the killing join him on this voyage. So it becomes about this, this sort of like uh, grizzled, intense, uh, you know, cowboy played by Jones who, who brings Barry Pepper uh, with him on this journey with the with this dead man and uh, and yeah there's there's a lot of uh, of great moments it's actually a very beautiful looking film but it's got that it has that intensity that uh, that really connects it to westerns it connects it to Peck and Pa I think uh, you were talking about Peck and Pa earlier it has that that uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia vibe <laughs> to it totally yeah if you want to see a, a western set in the modern day. Um, that would be high on the list of uh, films to see. The great, the great thing about I'm not going to get too far into Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. It's a it's a personal favorite of mine. But uh, like for the first several minutes of the film, you don't if you if you go into it cold, you don't know what decade it's set in or what century even. <laughs> the, the, the opening scenes are actually kind of they leave it kind of ambiguous. They don't show anything modern really. You just see these house these lovely Mexican haciendas and these people dressed in clothes that could be from any period and, and then you see a car and you're like oh geez <laughs> and it's very unexpected um but uh, yeah T- Tommy Lee jones i mean he always seems to have a bit of the cowboy about him no matter what he's doing even you know even in like men in black or something like that and you know i, th- I think uh uh you know he'd been around since the 70s uh but you know you think of his I wouldn't call it a breakout role because he was still pretty well known. But but when he's in the Fugitive and he's playing yeah. U.S. Yeah, that, that made U.S. Marshal for sure, and uh, you know that made him a, yeah certainly got started got the leading roles uh, following that. And uh, you know it's a it's a manhunt. I mean that's a classic uh, Western storyline is is the manhunt. Obviously this is based on on the classic TV show uh, the David Jansen show from the '60s. Um, but uh, 
you know, he kind of just fit that mold and fit into that role so easily. Uh, you know, he's, he's certainly a gifted actor, and he, I'm sure he puts, well, sure, he does put the work in to, to, to make those roles his own. But at the same time, there's, he just has this way of, of settling into these, these characters that he chooses for himself. It's true. I, I, I've been a longtime fan of his. In fact, in the 80s, he was in a movie that I watched when I was a kid, or late 70s, early 80s, called This Park is Mine where he played a guy who basically barricaded, I think a Vietnam vet who barricaded himself in Central Park, and anyone who came in got killed or caught in traps and stuff. It, <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of a, like a first blood kind yeah, of Yeah, I was going to say, like early Rambo. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and it's great, and it's almost impossible to find now. But if, if you're listening to this and you want to see something really interesting with a young Tommy Lee Jones, This Park is Mine is, uh, or The Park is Mine, I think it might be entitled, uh, is the thing to go for. But yeah, in more recent times, he's, he's gone, he's really done the Western thing, even uh, in the Valley of Ella, which was a sort of a post-Iraq uh, drama had Western elements. And more recently, I think maybe his most recent film as a director is The Homesman, which I definitely wanted to mention. It's a powerful film. Uh, and it really, I really liked it because it, it sidesteps a lot of generic sort of Hollywood screenwriting conventions. You just never know where it's going. Um, he stars in it as well, adapting a Glendon Swarthit novel about a woman in 1850s Nebraska named Mary B. Cuddy, played by Hilary Swank who, in the words of Jones's whiskered cowboy, George Briggs, is plain as an old tin pail and bossy. Uh, and the two of them, uh, they get together and they travel across the country to deliver three women who have been driven mad, mad by the West to a sanctuary that's a less, less uh, unforgiving. And, uh, and so it's spotted with jagged flashbacks to the three women's miserable pasts, and the, the journey is full of un unpredictable events, uh, from impulsive marriage proposals to suicides. It can be pretty grim viewing, but it's directed with such verve and, and a real sharp eye for the beauty of the landscape. And I, and I think the fact that it centers on the story of the female experience in this brutally patriarchal society, I think Jones creates a much more progressive version of the sort of heroic journey than we see in most Westerns. Uh, Swank is terrific in the role. I, it's funny, I, I think she tends to polarize people. She is a double Academy Award winning performer, so she definitely has gotten the credit where it's due. But uh, I, I know there's a lot of people who don't really like her. I think she's in the right role is amazing. Yes. Uh, and uh, and also, if you're going to watch The Homesman, look for a brief but a typically stellar appearance by Meryl Streep and, and also a very fine wig on James Spader. <laughs> <laughs> Spader in a wig. That's all I need to know. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. He, he's a guy who always had a beautiful, luxurious head of hair when he was a young man, blonde and wavy and 80s styled. And now uh, he's he's really lost it. And now he he has wigs in movies. But but he's such a great <laughs> actor. I mean, who cares, right? <laughs> <clears throat> and one scene Streep. That's yeah. I, I think we this came up uh, when we did our Meryl Streep. Show yes, and, I think it might have. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great western. I, I've got to uh, got to say, and and I really like this perspective from the the women's perspective. I think is really strong. Well, that that's it's an interesting note. There aren't a ton of women-driven Westerns out there. A few are coming to mind. The, the first one that comes to mind is Johnny Guitar uh, with Joan Crawford face squaring off against Mercedes McCambridge. Nicholas Ray, right? Nicholas Ray directed. I've always wanted to see that movie and I never have. It's terrific. I have, I have a copy and I can watch it anytime. Uh, and, well, uh, let's do that. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's because it's, 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 it's hailed as one of the first really major Freudian Westerns. Uh, um, although I think uh, Howard Hughes, the outlaw, probably might get that... Uh, might get that uh, award, but uh, in this case, uh, 
the women are all strong and tough and mean, and the men are all kind of emasculated and and um, <laughs> you know uh, kind of on on the wimpy side in the face of these these strong kind of town building women. And Mercedes McCambridge is awesome. I mean, most people know her as doing the voice of the demon in The Exorcist, but uh, she was she was a fine actor in her own right, and and I think she was. Um, hurt somewhat by the blacklist, if I'm not mistaken. I think that uh, kind of slowed her film career to a certain degree in the 1950s. Um, she's also great in Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. She has a terrific role in there. Um, but there, her, her roles are kind of few and far between uh, the ones that are readily available. And in uh, Johnny Guitar, the, 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 the intensity of hatred between her and Apparently, they didn't get along on the set either, and Ray encouraged that because he wanted it to come out on the screen. Um, you know, Joan Crawford is fairly dismissive of the film in later years, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's one of her, uh, her all-time best, I think. But, uh, you know, that's one of the few uh, sort of women-driven Westerns. There's another one called Westward the Women, uh, I think a late 50s offering from William Wyler that's quite good, um, where a, a bunch of pioneer women have to kind of fend for themselves, trying to get back to uh, a civilized outpost. Um, and uh, a film that... Uh, that I uh, got to watch recently, Kelly Records um, Meek's Cutoff, which uh, is about a uh, kind of a wagon train kind of story um, where a group of settlers heading for Oregon get cut off from, uh, from their, they take, a, they take a shortcut, as it were, Meek's, the Meek's Cutoff of the title. And uh, Meek, uh, the Meek of the title is a uh, kind of a wild frontiersman played by Bruce Greenwood of all people and huh. giving a more extreme performance than you'd expect from Bruce Greenwood right. and he's very good actually he's got when he first comes out of a tent with the shaggy hair and his long beard and you're just kind of like whoa is that <laughs> but but he he completely delivers on this character you know he, he doesn't quite go into like you know uh, fuzzy Bates territory with the e bitches but uh but he's close mm. <laughs> and uh you know he insists that he knows this this other way to get uh, to get to Oregon faster and of course it turns out not to be the case his, his stories uh and his uh, knowledge leave a lot to be desired <laughs> he's full of more confidence than actual uh intelligence but um and and so we've we've got the men of this wagon train including Paul Dano uh, in an early role and um the women who are kind of led by Michelle Williams, it becomes into a bit of a battle of the wills between the two sides as to what to do. Like it, and at some point, it becomes less about getting to Oregon and just finding some place that has some drinkable water because they're running awfully low. You see them marching across salt flats and and the you know they see the barrel getting progressively lower. But it's it's done in a very naturalistic style. It's um, it's very very down to earth and and it, you know there's obviously. They're obviously taking a few cues from, I think, Terrence Malick, and that there's a focus on landscape and and uh, there's a bird. One of the women has a canary with her, and who gets progressively sicker, of course, due to the lack of water. Um, and uh, but but uh, the dialogue is used sparingly. Um, you know, it's about people's kind of postures and and uh, that they kind of communicate their 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 inner thoughts and feelings and. I really, really got wrapped up in this film. It's, it's short. It's it's like uh, just over an hour and a half, I think. And uh, you know, and the, the conflict just kind of gets amped up as they get more and more lost, and the landscape becomes less and less familiar. And then uh, suddenly, I guess for the third act, if you want to call it that, uh, the, the, they throw throw a Native American into the mix, who's kind of been following them, and uh, they don't know his motives. There's a language barrier. Obviously, it's not an old Hollywood movie. Nobody understands. And they try to communicate via signals and drawings and, and all kinds of things. And there's all these uh, crossed uh, mixed messages, as you would expect. And uh, it just adds to the naturalistic feel. Like things unfold in a way that feels 
like it probably did for a lot of people uh, back in the day. And the, the the language is appropriately archaic without being too um, unfamiliar. Uh, I don't think they're going quite for the witch level of authenticity in terms of the language, but, you know, nobody says... Uh, you know, nobody utters any Western cliches or, or phrases that clunk on the ground because they're they're just not they they don't have that antiquity about them, you know, or they don't feel too or they feel too modern or what have you. So, um, and then the performances are uniformly pretty strong. Uh, Michelle Williams has worked with uh, Riker before, I believe, uh, and actually she, Kelly Riker has a new film coming out. Um, it's a modern day film about a group of women in a small town and th their relationships, which I think opens in other cities uh, this month sometimes. So I'm hoping that makes it here as well. But, but uh, you know, the focus of a lot of her films is, is uh, you know, man versus the elements. Old Joy is a, uh, with um, Bonnie Prince Billy is one of her earlier films that uh, has that theme kind of strung throughout it. And this is kind of along the same lines, but with a much broader landscape and, uh, you know, a much bigger threat in a lot of ways. And, and it's on Netflix. I, I really, uh, really enjoyed and uh, got into this film and I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. It's um, <clears throat> I, I wanted to see it. I, I've actually liked the filmmakers work. Um, yeah. The, the film I saw her was Wendy and Lucy. It was oh, yeah. one of her films with, uh, with Michelle Williams, where, where Williams plays a, a woman who comes sort of a, a, a She's a, a bit of a nomad who wanders into this this town in the Pacific Northwest and promptly loses her dog. And then the film mostly becomes about her trying to find the dog in the town. And uh, and she's not treated super well, but she's also someone who makes some really bad decisions. And you really, oh, it really makes your skin, you, you, you cringe at some uh -huh. of the decisions she makes. Um, but yeah, it's a really, that sort of naturalism is, a, I think, a an element of her her uh, her directorial style and and you know when thinking about naturalism I had to uh, in in westerns uh, I think it's important that we at least mention the Revenant given what attention <laughs> that that film got last last year and I mean it is a western it's set in Alberta it's a well a northern maybe uh, <laughs> but it uh, it has all those elements it's the the frontier and and the lawlessness and the desperation and uh, and revenge. Um, it's not a film that I loved. I, I was impressed by it technically, but I really didn't. It didn't. I didn't really feel it, and it mount, amounted to much. Partly because I found DiCaprio to be mostly unappealing in his role. I didn't. I know he won the Academy Award for his performance, so a lot of people would disagree with me. But I, I, I was much more on the Tom Hardy side in that <laughs> film because he was funny and he had he was crazy, and I really sort of enjoyed him in the final kind of face-off mano a mano out in the in the snow I, I i can't really say i i knew who i who to cheer for but uh but yeah it does that film does have a certain real a real sense of trying to be authentic through realism and uh, and i i appreciated that yeah there's a there's an earlier version of that story um starring richard harris which has just finally been released after years and years of being in video limbo uh and now i can't remember the name of that version of the film but I'm, uh, it's like Man, of the, I think it's just called Man of the Wilderness. Actually, I okay. think that's the title. Um, and I think Warner Archive have put it out, so you have to go online to find it. You won't find it in a store. But um, you know, clearly, this is a story that someone felt was worth retelling with in a in a modern uh, with a modern viewpoint. Yeah, because based and, on and, true story techniques. Yeah. So uh, you know, I, I was quite taken with the film, uh, but again, mostly for the setting, the the cinematography. I think I think a lot of it was 
more about that than necessarily uh, DiCaprio in the main role. Or, um, and, Har- you know, Hardy, of course, is always worth a watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I feel like we are running out of time. We should wrap up here with uh, just a couple more films that, uh, that might be worth mentioning. Uh, and these, the two on my list, uh, you might have others, Stephen, but on my list are two Westerns made by uh, not made in the West or even uh, by Americans. <laughs> and so I thought it was good to, to offer a few international interpretations of the Western. The first is called The Salvation, which feels a bit like a spaghetti Western, but it's been shot in South Africa Africa by Danes. So this connection, <laughs> this collection of, of international voices, I think, is what I like most about it. I'm half Danish, so anything that a Danish filmmaker is going to do, I think I'm going to pay attention to. But this is really fun. It's... it's um, uh, Thomas Anders Thomas Jensen, who he co-wrote the thing, and he co-scripted a number of Suzanne Beer's best films, as well as Lona Scherfig's uh, Wilbur Wants to Kill Himself. And in this film, in The Salvation, Mads Mikkelsen is, is a Danish soldier who heads to America to make a fresh start, and he goes, he goes with his brother, and he spends years basically trying to make a go of it, eventually sending for his wife and son. Uh, but upon their arrival, they are murdered, and then the film becomes a revenge drama. And uh, the revenge he takes upon the murderer's gang led by Henry Delarue, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Uh, oh, now, nice. yeah, yeah. Now he's uh, he's been terrorizing the local town on behalf of oil interests who want to buy up all the property. Uh, and in his camp, Delarue is holding captive a woman named Princess, played by Ava Green. And uh, you know she is usually the best thing in many movies that she's <laughs> in. And this is the case here. She's terrific in this film. Uh, she's actually character's mute. Um, and this is in fact a Casino Royale reunion. Her and Matt Mickelson. Uh, but uh, as if you didn't have enough reason to watch it, it's a really fun straight ahead western. It's violent. It's uh, it's a revenge western. The shot in South Africa, I think, makes it by Scandinavians. I think just makes it that much more interesting. And uh, Mickelson, it's really Mickelson's picture. Green is great in it, but uh, Mickelson is is has one of the great scowls in cinema, and he is is utilized menacingly and frequently <laughs> here. Uh, yeah, so so for that, uh, I would definitely recommend it. Do you have anything else on your list? Uh, I think I'm I think I've got through my films, but uh, the Salvation is a film I've been chopping at the bit using a Western cliche <laughs> to to see, um, and I just the opportunity is not come about where I've either come across a copy or found it uh, elsewhere. But, uh, you know, just that cast alone. I mean, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is a, is a guy that uh, I feel has been underutilized. You know, I mean, he was the best thing in The Watchmen for sure. Um, and, you know, anything else I've seen him in, he's been fantastic. But but he's one of those guys that seems to work below the radar somehow. Like, he does. He's, he's, I think the fact he was on television the last couple seasons of The Good Wife, which is a very popular show. Mm-hmm. And he, I think if that kind of helped establish his his sort of stardom with a certain audience in, in uh, thanks to I mean that is a hugely hugely popular show uh, but yeah you're right in movies he tends to make B movies action movies and and he's not he's kind of he's a guy who maybe gets gets the script after you know two or three other tough guy actors get it uh, I really like him though I think and I think he's great here as the bad guy and, I, you know, I do love Western movies that are shot in unusual locales. I mean, obviously, most of the Italian so-called spaghetti Westerns were shot in Spain for the most part. Right. Um, you know, although some of them were done in other... There, there are a few German Western, German-made Westerns from the from uh, the 1960s and onward that were actually shot in various locations around Germany, which I can't even imagine. But <laughs> yeah, I guess either. maybe they're more mountainous. I don't know. Yeah. Um, including one about Custer. So I don't know where that was. I mean, they may have gone to Spain for that. Hard to say. Obviously... 
um, you know, they had some ties to <laughs> fascist Spain at some point. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but the, Karl May is this um, auth, German author of Westerns, uh, you know, who, who's like, you know, probably never left Germany, but had this fascination with the American West and wrote these German language Western stories that were insanely popular over there. Um, there's a Korean one called The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. Okay. Um, you know, just this high octane kind of train robbery sort of story, but it's, you know, told in the very super aggressively intense style of Korean action movies. Uh-huh. And uh, that, that that one is definitely worth seeking out. Uh, you know, I've seen it a couple of times. And I still can't remember exactly what happens because it all goes by so fast. But <laughs> if you get a chance to see the good, the bad, I think it is on Netflix. So if you get a chance to see it, definitely check that one out. Um, I also want to mention as as a final film on my list is The Proposition by John uh, Hillcote, the uh, set in the Australian outback in the 1880s. It's uh, it's a uh, it's it's the events following uh, a rape and murder, and uh, it's yeah, there's the revenge and gunfights, and pretty much it's an Australian western, and uh, and of course uh, Nick Cave. I believe had a hand in the music and in the screenwriting, uh, and it has his kind of, uh, you know, he has he comes with a certain persona, and you feel it in this film. <laughs> it's so true. Um, yeah, it, well, it's funny because he also, yeah, he did the music for uh, he and Warren Ellis did the music for Hell and High Water as well, and also for uh, the assassination of uh, Jesse James. So he's, he's he's he definitely has a feel for this uh, genre in in music and story, which is kind of a an interesting combination. And and the proposition, I I've seen it like three times now, and I it's a film I'll, I'll certainly return to. And there's certainly, I mean, it was the frontier. It was it was. England's version of the Wild West, uh, you know, the, the Wild South, I guess, or Wild South, uh, Southeast, whatever you want to call it. But uh, it's, uh, you know, you think of like the story of Ned Kelly, which has been told a few times, never terribly well. Um, there's kind of a, a, a middling uh, version starring Mick Jagger. Right, I've heard of that, but I've never um, seen it. Directed by Tony Richardson, who made uh, Tom Jones. And then there's a later version with Heath Ledger that is fun, but fairly insubstantial. Because um, I feel like the the... the the whole struggle between you know between Ned Kelly and these land barons um, still deserves a proper you know maybe more operatic kind of telling because um, the the, uh, the Heath Ledger one was fairly comic booky and uh, but the whole the iconic image of him wearing this metal armor and like facing off against posses you know with this metal plating deflecting the bullets is just such a you know which is actually a true story you can go to the museum in I think Victoria in Australia and actually see the armor that they took off him when he, you know, when he was arrested. So, um, you know, that's, that's a story that will probably be retold at some point in the next 10 or 20 years, I would think. Well, that wraps up our look at modern day Westerns or movies that are Western-ish. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And thanks for listening to Lens Me Ears this week. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, at Lens Me Your Ears. And uh, also, uh, you can send us an email if you like at lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm at Karsten Knox at C-A-R-S-T-E-N-K-N-O-X. If you enjoyed the show, you can drop by our Patreon page and drop us a coin or two. And, uh, of course, as always, thanks to the folks at CKDU-FM at Dalhousie and Village Sound Network. Lens Mere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. 
Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at VSoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.